This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc hello everyone and welcome to slash home daily for wednesday march 22nd 2023 on today's episode we're gonna have a spoiler filled conversation about the mandalorian chapter 20 the foundling this is slash home editorial director peter soretta and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Star Wars expert, Brian Young. I'm thrilled to be here. So guys, I wasn't here last week. And I was, uh, uh, be honest with you, I was totally expecting things to fall to pieces. I thought like, oh, sure, the podcast will not be as good. And then I listened to the podcast and it was, it was better without me. So what I'm saying <laughs> is... Uh, <laughs> I don't know about I that. I'm going to take that as a compliment, but say we missed you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I loved your conversation uh, that you had, uh, your impromptu conversation about how the expanded books and comics and TV shows, uh, how they fix things or expand on things. And, and Brian's feeling is on. What he thinks about that, I thought that was that was really insightful and really really interesting. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay, let's uh, actually let me say say what I thought of last week's episode because I wasn't here. Uh, it was very good. It was very unexpected to have this solo story following Doctor Pershing and um, and uh, I don't know where it's going. And it uh, it w- it was very compelling while watching it, but. Um, have we had previous seasons where it had a like a bottle episode like that following a different character? Not where we had like 
bookends that like introduced and ended the episode. This this was like the longest and like biggest departure because usually they jump back and forth if they're going to do something like this. Um, and it's kind of surprising they didn't, but I guess it made sense considering what happens with Mando and Grogu, you know, really only works with the beginning and the end because there's not much of a middle there. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, I mean, this is definitely something that they did on Book of Boba Fett, which should have been getting used to this style of storytelling. Oh, for sure. For sure. Hey, hey I'm not complaining. Uh, I'm just wondering because I, I, everything's starting to blur together to me, guys. So I don't know. I'm like, did they do a Cara Dune episode? Maybe they did. I don't remember at this point. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, so it's like I, I was just wondering if this is something they have done before. Didn't didn't they do one that was mostly a Grogu adventure though? Maybe did they do a Boba Fett episode? I probably should have looked this up before they gave him a whole podcast. series. Well, yeah, I, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they gave him six. They gave him three of six episodes or whatever. <laughs> okay. Um. You know, usually we start with feedback where we read your emails. You can write to us at peter at slashfilm.com with your thoughts, your, uh, you know, do you have a problem with something we say on the podcast? Do you have speculation, something we missed? Uh, you know, write us, peter at slashfilm.com. Uh, we don't really have any emails to read this week, but I do have something I wanted to bring up. This is an interview that Dave Filoni did with The Rap, and The Rap asked Dave Filoni... Uh, I thought this question was interesting. He said, I- I'm going to read it here. Uh, Kathy Kennedy said in 2020 that the series would uh, would uh, come to a climactic story event. But more recently, John has said the Mandalorian could go on forever. Are you building towards a climactic story event or has that been put aside? And Filoni's answer is, well, from a per- certain point of view, it could it could build a climactic thing and the Mandalorian could still go on. It's not necessarily either or, is it? It's an interesting way to think about it. I tend to think as we've been working on the Mandalorian and then writing Ahsoka and then John Watts came in with the skeleton crew, there's an entire time period that is post-Return of the Jedi. And I look at that time period, which before The Force Awakens is around 30 years of time. When you look at the original trilogy, it's much less significant amount of time that those three movies take place in. And so what I like like is that we're really building a very slowly building very slowly an ecosystem of characters and politics in events in the post Return of the Jedi time period. And that may or may not expand into bigger in a bigger way as we add more shows to it and add more characters to it. The good thing is that we're all talking creatively together about where these stories are all going. And I love whiteboards and I whiteboard everything and have timelines. Uh, They always start back with the Phantom Menace and always go out to the Rise of Skywalker. I have all these slots in between and where everybody's doing everything. So I can look at it all and commiserate with Kathy on what's going on here and where it's going. It's very fun. I think the reality of there being a big event in this time period is very, very real. It's all I would say to that. But yes, if John wanted to keep making Mandalorian stories, as long as he does not get bumped off in said Titanic event, then they, I suppose, could continue. There doesn't seem to be any lack of interest in Grogu and Mando. That's for sure. 
So I wanted to hear what you guys thought about that. Like, do you think that's what we are going to, or are we going to head towards a climactic event and then the Mandalorian will continue after that? Or is that the, is that the, you know, the end of, of all the storytelling that's headed towards this? I think, I think the thing with Dave Filoni is that he speaks in riddles purposely <laughs> so that you could read that as either way because he knows exactly what he's doing in that regard. Um, and I also, my other side comment about that is I could hear people's like heads exploding when Dave Filoni's talking about how they're actually working toward Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... What I think is going to happen is John Favreau has made no secret of the fact that he wants to just keep telling stories with these characters, but they've also built something and they're building to something. And I think that the last couple of episodes have really showed us that they're building to something. And I think the Ahsoka show is going to add to that. So yeah, we're going to get some cool climactic event, but yeah, I think, I think we'll, we'll go on beyond that. Yeah, I think similar to how, you know, obviously the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they, they culminated in Avengers movies every now and then. And overall, we, we had Avengers Endgame as a nice period uh, on the first saga of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but they're still continuing movies. They're still doing TV shows. So I can easily see it being like that. It probably won't be quite as, uh, you know, big as far as having so many different installments all connected. But obviously Mando and Ahsoka uh, share some... Uh, you know, things together and Boba Fett, you know, for, you know, if, if we want to include him, that's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think this is all going to lead into a movie or do you think it will uh, like a theatrical movie or do you think it'll be a Disney plus movie or do you think it'll be a Disney plus series? I mean, it would be very cool if it, if it was a movie. Um, I feel like if they're going to do a movie, they, they should go theatrical with it. But at the same time, I think then you run into the problem of, you know, uh, the, the same issue you have when you t turn any TV show into a movie is, you know, is there enough there for people who, if they haven't been keeping up with the TV shows to go see it, are the people who are keeping up with the TV shows enough of a reason to make the movie? Because I think if Star Wars has proven anything right now is that uh, there really needs to be like an audience there for them to make a movie because, you know, they didn't really entirely show up for, for Solo. Uh, you know, that was a box office problem and that really changed the trajectory of what Star Wars was doing. And that's why we're getting, you know, these these Disney Plus shows instead of movies yeah. for some of these characters. So I, I think it depends. But, you know, if but I think doing, I think people didn't want a solo prequel. And I feel like the, the audience interest is here for the so and Grogu. I, you know, I talked to a lot of people who, uh, you know, in that time between solo left theaters in December because it was a pretty short theatrical window that they didn't even know it had come out yet. They were waiting for December. So I think that there was just as much like problems with Disney changing up the distribution pattern for star Wars movies as anything else. I don't think there's actually all that many people who were like, ah, I don't want more Han Solo, uh, especially if it's another actor. I think most people sort of generally agree that it worst the solo movie's harmless, but I think most people tend to enjoy it. It's pretty well well regarded among fans, I feel like. I mean, I'm not saying it's not well regarded. I just feel like, I, I don't know. It, it seemed like the, the response to something like Rogue One, where it was new characters and a new thing, uh, there it seemed like there was more people interested in that than there were like a prequel story of, 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 of any kind of any character, not, uh, you know, singling out, you know, Han Solo. 
I don't know. There's many reasons why that could have maybe not connected, and we could we could probably have an hour long contact uh, a, a conversation about why why it didn't uh, do well at the box office. But I I don't know. I, I, okay, let me pose the question to you guys: Which would you rather see? Would you rather see like an epic mini series event, like a five episode mini series of event on Disney Plus, or would you rather see a two hour movie? That's theatrical for, for the, this thing. I think it depends on, I guess, what groundwork is laid and like what the story is. I, I think that I would like to see a big budget applied to, you know, Mandalorian and Grogu and Ahsoka because I think those characters deserve it. And it would be cool, you know, to see them use a lot, you know, bigger budget on VFX and whatever they need to, you know, uh, expand the scope of their story. Uh, but then again, you know, maybe a, a miniseries where they can spend a little bit more money, a little bit more time, you know, would also be just as satisfying. You know, I, I think it just depends. I mean, I want it theatrical, even if that's one movie or if that's five episodes, I still say I would go pay at the box office to see The Mandalorian every Saturday matinee in a movie theater rather than just watch it on the small screen. I would do that even if they were releasing it on Wednesdays. <laughs> At, at, on Disney Plus because it just looks so much better on the big screen. Um, so even if they were to do that whole five episode miniseries, super series or whatever you want to call it, I would go watch that in the theater too. But yeah, no, I, I, I prefer movie theaters just generally. So I feel like I'm biased in that regard. I, I love how Brian, when he answers the question, he changes the question do would he watch would he watch Mandalorian every week in theaters? I, I guess what I was asking Brian is like, would you be happier with a bigger budget two hour movie or a five hour home home experience? Well, and and I guess I mean the answer to my question is I would prefer whatever got me in the movie theater. So the two hour so movie. If, so the two hour movie, or they could make the five hours and just put them in the theater slowly. <laughs> Hey, I, I think we would all do that if if they were doing it. I, I'd be in theaters every week for the Mandalorian if if they did it, but it doesn't seem like that's uh, the business plan. But, no, it's not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that is actually. You know what? I wasn't going to bring this up because Ben talked about this yesterday on the podcast. But there was a couple Star Wars news stories yesterday. And since it's a shorter episode, I think it's going to be a, a shorter discussion. I thought I'd bring it up uh, with Damon Lindelof leaving uh, his Star Wars movie that he was going to be doing. Uh, we, we don't really know much more beyond that, but it's been reported. Uh, I think Jeff Snyder broke the story. And we, we actually, I talked to uh, uh, Ryan Scott on this podcast on Monday. He had this, this interview with Damon Lindelof, and it was uh, very uh interesting quote that uh now in retrospect if you you read the quote it really sounds like he had already decided to leave at that point uh so i wanted to hear what you guys thought of this like what are your thoughts on lindelof leaving uh another high profile name who was attached to a star wars thing uh leaving uh lucasfilm I'm really glad that they're demanding that perfection and are willing to not move forward with stuff if it's not ready. Because I think that might have been a problem with The Force Awakens. 
Well, this doesn't sound like they're not moving forward with it because it's not ready because it's the the story says that Lucasfilm is getting new writers and they still plan on announcing the project at Star Wars Celebration in April. So I think if anything, this is just a testament to, you know, like a lot of people, including us, like we're, we're all armchair, you know, critics. We're all seeing the situation, providing our commentary and our, you know, uh, opinions and everything. But th- this is a really difficult job, crafting something for you know, millions of fans, a lot of them which can't agree on what they want, and doing something that fits squarely within uh, a universe that a lot of people have a different perspectives on what truly defines it. And when you're trying to figure out something that not only fits in that universe, but also takes it in a new direction, that's a supremely difficult job. And I think that, you know, even somebody like Damon Lindelof saying, you know, in, in the quote that he provided in our inter- interview with Ryan Scott, that it is extremely, extremely difficult. And, uh, you know, it even even gave him reservations about whether or not he should be trying to make a Star Wars story or if he should just let somebody else do it. And it sounds like he figured out the latter, you know. And so maybe it's, it comes down to like Lucasfilm wanting something different than what he wanted. And if, if he didn't feel like he could deliver that, then he felt like he should put it in somebody else's hands. Uh, but I don't think that these kinds of stories are necessarily a bad thing because it means that like the project's still happening and they're just figuring out what the best way is for it to move forward and to hopefully give people what they want to see from Star Wars. I just think it's interesting that a lot of people are getting into that kitchen that they've, you know, (laughs) you know, you said that that was the first film he's ever seen in the, in in the theater. It is like you, you get into that kitchen and then you decide, Oh, maybe I just want to eat the food. I don't want to actually cook in this kitchen. Um, and it's something that seems to be happening time and time again. So I, I don't know. It, it's, I'll, I'll use the word interesting um, because I, I, I was really, I'm a huge Damon Lindelof fan and I'm, I was really excited to see what he would do in the Star Wars galaxy. And uh, I'm uh, disappointed. I, I got to say, I'm disappointed that he's, that he's not continuing on with this project. Uh, but I'm curious to see what it is because I'm sure whatever he's contributed to it, uh, uh, Brad, he might still get like a credit, right? Like even with new writers coming on and stuff, it might be substantial work. Yeah, there's been plenty of times, especially on big blockbuster movies where like the the studio will still use some of the ideas that came from the original script. And even if a lot of the script has been overhauled, there's still a tangible amount uh, enough that's in there that like the writer still gets credit. So I wouldn't be surprised if we still see a writing credit for Damon Lindelof. Yeah, and the other bit of news I wanted to briefly mention was uh, the Daniels are doing an episode of Skeleton Crew. How cool is that? Ridiculously, yeah, very cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I'm a fan of theirs, and I'm excited to see what they can do in the Star Wars galaxy. It'll be it'll be interesting. Um, okay, let's jump into this episode. Let's talk about our brief thoughts. Brad, what are your brief thoughts on? The Foundling. Uh, a pretty basic episode, short and sweet, some cool stuff. Uh, I, I think that this is um, the first time in a while that I, I really enjoyed uh, the, the Grogu stuff more than the Mandalorian stuff. Uh, we get a little bit of insight into his, his origins, uh, a cool little cameo appearance, uh, and there's still some cool Mandalorian action too. You know, I always like seeing a team of Mandalorians uh, take to the sky, use their weapons and whatnot. Um, but this, this definitely felt more in line with the like adventure of the week formula that we're used to seeing, uh, from the Mandalorian. Yeah. This felt very season one Mandalorian, uh, Brian, brief thoughts on the foundling. 
despite some really hilarious jumps in logic that just make me laugh in this episode, I really <laughs> enjoyed it. It pushed my buttons in the right way, um, especially with that the the flashback sequence and the cameos and everything that all of that implied. Um, and I'm really interested in where this is ultimately heading, even if we got there in, in kind of a silly way with Bo-Katan. I like I think that was the most interesting thing about this episode is that the two stars of this episode were Bo-Katan and Grogu and not Din Djarin. He was very much a side character. Yeah, no, I, that that is an interesting thought. I didn't even think about that. Uh, my thoughts are, I don't know, I, I was enjoying this episode as it was happening, but I'm, I kind of don't like that it's. It's the shortest episode of the series so far. Uh, the side quest that's in it kind of seems to come out of nowhere and doesn't seem to be all that important. Like, it really seems like the the quest of the week thing that we were doing in season one of The Mandalorian doesn't really seem to be furthering the main story. I guess it is because it's setting up Bo-Katan and her relationship with this tribe. But... Um, Yes, I, I think what was most compelling to me was Grogu's backstory. And uh, I got to say, it was not at all what I expected. If I had the bingo card for all the things that I expected to happen in Grogu's backstory, I don't think I would have gotten any chips or I wouldn't have stamped the card at all. So, uh, but we can talk about that in a second. Uh, let's get into the breakdown. Uh, this episode is directed by Carl Weathers, who obviously plays Grief Karga in the series. Uh, but he's uh, he, he's best known as an actor. He's also directed 17 episodes of TV over the last two decades, including Silk Stockings, Hawaii Five-0, and Law and & Order. And I uh, wanted to ask you guys, what, how do you think uh, Carl Weathers did in his Mandalorian directorial debut? I, I think it was fine. I think uh, there was a, a really interesting kinetic energy to everything. And it can't have been easy to have directed the the fight with a bunch of Mandalorians on jetpacks, right? Like that's <laughs> actually a really technically complicated scene, especially when you realize that there are no actual pterosaurs and things. And that that would take a lot of work and skill to be able to pull off a sequence like that, actually. Um, so I think he was, he was, you know, he did what he needed to do to get that episode together. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, he, he learned a lot too, from being, you know, on set as one of the stars of the Mandalorian, because, you know, he, he was involved in that, uh, you know, Mandalorian shootout there was, uh, back in, was it season two, I think, right? Is that early on in season two or is that later in season one? Which Season one, I think at the end of season one was the shootout, uh, with the bar and stuff. So you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so he was he's been around and he's seen how stuff is done. So I'm sure you know even if he hadn't necessarily tackled something uh, that big before that that was something that that helped immensely. And uh, he's he's been around for a while, you know, so he knows how to do stuff like deliver you know action with with emotion that kind of thing. So yeah, good good on him. Yeah, no, I I, I thought it was a a fine episode, uh, directorially speaking, and yeah, it, I mean, especially coming from where he, if you look at his list of credits of stuff he's directed, I don't think I think this must be the most action he he's done. Actually, if you combine the seven, the sixteen episodes of TV he's directed, I think he, there's more action in this episode. So yeah, that that is challenging for sure. Like Brian said, um, 
Okay, so the opening scene featured all the Mandalorians of this uh, covert uh, practicing combat and uh, makes me wonder, like, is this what they do every day? Like, it is... Like, <laughs> I wonder like, that, too, because, like, because what else is there to do? Like, if they're not, like, what what are they doing? Well, like, this entire time, what, what else is there to do? And also, this feels like a tremendous waste of resources. Like, they're firing rockets <laughs> yeah. out in into the water. Like, they're, I mean, sure, like, there are shooting ranges in, in the real world, and, like, you're shooting bullets and stuff like that, but these feel like a lot more costly resources. <laughs> yeah, especially some of those things like whistling birds and stuff, which are supposed to be rare and Beskar steel and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I just imagine a world where, you know, you know, Bo-Katan is on her, <laughs> on her throne sulking every day and the, the Mandalorians are just like shooting weapons into the water every day. And, uh, I don't know. What, what did you guys think of this whole sequence? I also thought, like, I, I want to say this um, as a criticism. I thought that it could have been cooler. It seemed like kind of a free-for-all. Like, everybody's just, like, having well, fun. Like, I, I kind of expected a Mandalorian combat practice to be, like, this big structured game. Like, a, like, you know, capture the flag thing. And, like, they're, like, in groups. And it's, like, this big, like, I don't know, I guess, like, Halo kind of thing do you know what i mean like the, I, I... the thing the thing for me is that it it fit the story really well because if you watch how carl weathers actually photographs this sequence it's from bo katan's perspective and it's it feels very chaotic and like she's out of place and that's i think by design because she feels very out of place there and that chaos comes through the performance in her helmet which is actually i don't know if that's something we should credit to Katie Sackhoff, the other performers, Carl Weathers, the editing, whatever, that magical combination, um, it coalesced to, to really tell a story visually about how out of place she felt. And that's why I really enjoyed the chaos of this training scene. I also do wonder if it's like a way uh, of showing too how she sees this chaos among them. And maybe she's like thinking about how maybe she can be like the leader that they need. Like that if, you know, if she's willing to adhere to the old ways that maybe she can provide some guidance for them and, uh, you know, allow them to do something, you know, more meaningful with their, their skills and whatnot, you know, seeing, seeing what they can do and hopefully be able to harness their abilities in some way. Yeah. For a, a sequence that's largely action and just really cool visuals and, you know, dudes shooting guns and stuff. It actually packed a lot of story ideas in what that represented in a way that I thought was really, um, it was really competent. Especially in, and we'll, we'll talk about this here in a second, but like when they get into the sparring and, you know, uh, Din encourages Grogu to, you know, engage with the other, the other foundling uh, for like a sparring battle, the way Bo-Katan, you know, talks to to Grogu in a little bit more of like a, a sweeter bedside manner fashion to like encourage him and, you know, uh, recognizing that, that like, Hey, you know what, this might be difficult, but you know, I dealt with this too. And, you know, just, just kind of like breaking things down for him in a way that is a little, uh, I don't know, less, um, not, not abrasive. I don't know what word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean? It's almost There's motherly. That. Like is Bo-Katan becoming <laughs> Grogu's mama? I guess. Well, I, I think she does offer a really good counterbalance to that paternal sort of aggression, like, 
yeah, get in the ring, kid. You're tough. You're my kid. Of course you are. You know, that sort of thing that 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 Din Djarin has for him. For sure. Uh, so Bo spots Grogu in the corner. He's sitting in the sand as the rocks around him are moving. And uh, I, I think we're led to believe that at first we think that Grogu is actually using the force to move the rocks around. But then it's revealed that, no, he's not using the force to, to move them. There are actually little hermit crabs inside the rocks. And uh, it's a really cute moment with Grogu. But I, I think also I might be reaching here. I Brian, had, tell me if I'm reaching here, but I think it's teasing a deeper idea that there's more going on below the surface that we might not initially realize. Yeah, I had, no, a, I, I had a different yeah. read on that, actually, because I don't think it's... I, I think it, at first it is meant to imply that he was moving the rocks himself, and then you see that he wasn't. maybe necessarily wasn't because of all the whatever crabs, hermit crabs. They were Star Wars hermit crabs. But then I wonder, like if they were really showing maybe, maybe what he wasn't doing was moving them. Maybe he was stopping them all from moving. And it was an, a way of showing how, how powerful Grogu is still becoming with the force. I think, I think both of those are, are actually really good reads on it, but my interest was, it was really at the end when it reveals that they were, none of them were rocks and they were all crabs. And it made me feel like Grogu is really learning what's under the helmet right of everyone around because that's essentially the society he's living in everybody's wearing a rock over their head the same way all these crabs are that's a good point as well so uh mando offers grogu as the next challenger in the foundling fight training group and he goes up against the boy who was inducted into the group a couple episodes ago his name is ragnar and we learned that Grogu doesn't wear a helmet yet because he's one too young to, or no, because he's too young to speak the creed is what they said. Uh, so I guess this answers a question a bunch of people have had, a bunch of fans watching the show has had, like, you know, when do you wear the helmet? And I guess that's like after you are old enough to speak the creed and actually believe the creed. And also that to me, um, a lot of people have been kind of assuming that we'd see Grogu wearing a Mandalorian helmet by the end of the series at some point. Like there's a lot of fan art and stuff like that. Does this mean that we'll actually have to have a fully talking Grogu for that to happen? Yeah. Do you, do you unless, think it's going to happen? Unless something, unless <laughs> something happens to Din Djarin and in a fit of rage, he puts on his, slain father's helmet or something um that'd be too big (laughs) also i gotta gotta say i think it's hilarious that he's too young to speak the creed but not too young to fight (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah do do you you think i don't think i've ever asked you guys this but do you think that we'll ever see grogu wearing a mandalorian helmet i don't know I mean, I think it partially depends on how this whole, you know, combination of Mandalorian sects works out. Um, like, you know, if, if whether or not we're going to see some kind of hybrid of, uh, you know, the, the Mandalorians who follow the way and like Bo-Katan's, you know, followers or anything like that. 
if it'll be something where he needs to wear a helmet to be Mandalorian. Uh, I think the more important question is, is if Grogu does have to wear a helmet, does it have to contain his ears or will his helmet have slots so his ears stick out? Hmm. I think a it'll lot, have slots. Yeah, a lot of the fan art has slots. I, I think it would look ridiculous if you... I mean, I guess technically if you're building a helmet, it should go around the ears, right? It's supposed to protect you. True. But yeah, I think that would look ridiculous if you made a helmet going around or, the ears. And, and would it be too hard to make a helmet where the ears are metal around him? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so this duel is with training darts, and it's kind of like Star Wars paintball. And uh, Bo-Katan doesn't believe Grogu knows how to fire darts, but Mando does. Grogu gets hit twice, and Mando encourages him to show them what he can really do. Uh, I, so are we to read here that Grogu was scared to show his force powers off in front of the Mandalorian covert? Is that what yeah, was going I mean, on? I get the impression that Grogu, especially with the stuff in the flashback, if he's going to spend any amount of time with a Jedi on the run in the days after order 66, that the training he's going to get is going to be, keep this a secret from everyone. Right. Yeah. And so overcoming that is going to take a while for him because he spent so many years hiding that. That that, that definitely makes sense. But he actually does trust them enough to show that he can jump around high in the air like like Yoda and fire all these uh, all three darts in a rapid succession on Ragnar. And everyone is impressed, including Bo-Katan, who asks if uh, if Din taught Grogu. And he simply says, not me. Yeah. I, I haven't seen the final episode of season two since it aired. But who was there when to witness Grogu leaving with Luke? Who knows it was about that? Moff Gideon, Bo-Katan, Fennec Shand, Boba Fett, and... Or no, Boba Fett was on the ship elsewhere. So it was Fennec Shand, yeah. Bo-Katan... Uh, Din and Moff Gideon. So Bo-Katan knows that he went off and trained with Luke. Yeah. So it seems like a stupid question to me. No? Well, I mean, maybe, I mean, he's been with Din a lot longer than he was with Luke. It's reasonable to assume that he'd been training. That's true. Um, it's also interesting that the Mandalorian and uh, the armorer, especially, are so willing to accept a Force user into their covert. Because, like, didn't the armorer like kind of say some bad things about the Jedi previously? That they were like um, their enemy or something. They were, um, you know, they were. Um, but that was in their ancient history. Yeah. It, it's just interesting because these, these um, this group seems to be so tied to like ancient history and like the rules, the way, all that stuff. But they're so, uh, the fact that the armor is willing to accept this guy with, with force powers into the covert. Like, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I'm not going to say it's like, uh, it's not a criticism of any kind. But I think it's interesting that uh, that she's not tied to like the history of stuff. 
that makes sense. Um, okay. Anyway, so uh, the one person not impressed by it was Paz Vizla, who it turns out is related to Ragnar, which we speculated a couple episodes ago. He's his fa- father, and uh, well, you know what? What? What were you gonna say? This is one of those questions because they refer to him as a foundling a few times. Okay, well, adopted father, I'm going to say. Yeah, well, because I was trying to figure out, too, because I was like, wait, if it's actually his kid, when, like, because when we saw them on Book of Boba Fett, the covert was just the two of them. Like, did his ex have custody or something, and he came and, like, abducted (laughs) him to, you know, because this is the way? I don't, I don't know. So it seems like wherever they found this kid, Paz Vizla feels very attached to him one way or the other enough to call him a dad. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's been a long while since we've kind of talked about Paz. Uh, Brian, can you give us a refresher on who Paz Vizla is? So Paz Vizla, we don't know a whole lot about him specifically, but his family was associated with Death Watch. Pre Vizla, which was another Mandalorian that John Favreau voiced in the Clone Wars, was the leader of Death Watch and allied with Maul to... Um, take back Mandalore away from the pacifists led by Bo-Katan's sister. Paz Vizla has been in this covert uh, and was a one of the children of the Watch, waited out the purge on Concordia with the rest of them and then joined the covert on Navarro uh, and helped fight the Imperials alongside Din Djarin uh, in the Book of Boba Fett. Uh, he challenged Din Djarin for possession of the Darksaber and lost. And he's been sort of skeptical about Din Djarin and him being an apostate ever since he revealed he had taken his helmet off. And so this episode's also him warming up to them, a li- warming back up to Din a little bit. Yeah. Am I correct to say that he's still voiced by John Favreau? I It sounds like John Favreau to me. I know that, that somebody... Had, you know, I looked in the credits and they changed it to the body performer. Yeah, Tate but... Fletcher is the guy that's credited in the credits. And he, he was in Breaking Bad. He played Lester. He was in a bunch of stuff. Um, bigger uh, dude. But that that also fits with the mode of them giving credit to the people in the Mandalorian costumes. You know how you've got Brendan Wayne and Latif Crowder getting credit in the episodes now, too. So it seems like it could just match that. I wanted to ask you guys. If Paz Vizsla ever gets unmasked in this series or in, in any show or movie, what is it going to look like under the mask? Is it going to look like Tate Fletcher or is it going to look like John Favreau? I'd bet Tate Fletcher. You think so? My, my one yeah. argument against this is to have a black series action figure of John Favreau underneath that mask. Is that canon? No. I mean, like, how many action figures are there where they have, like, all Halloween coloring or, like, the Christmas yeah. elf stormtroopers and stuff? What does that matter? Eh, you make a good point. Okay. But to, be, uh, but, to, but to be fair, the Dave Filoni figure that they made is of his actual canon character, so... Hmm. I don't know. Okay, anyways, uh... We might not ever see him on mass, so that's just a ridiculous question anyways. Uh, so this giant leathery winged raptor-like creature flies over the covert and snatches a Ragnar. Brian, is this a creature we've ever seen before in the Star Wars universe? 
not that I could find. I know that there are some ties to other creatures like this. It looks a little bit like a creature that was called a pterosaur in the old legends, but it also looks like um, the head looks like the creature from the holiday special that Boba Fett rides, uh, which is more land-based than this. So I think it's a mishmash of, of old things to be made new. The audio description track keeps on calling it a raptor. I don't think that's its name, but that's what I'm going to refer to to it as the, for the first, actually, uh, for the rest. They actually of the refer they refer to it as a raptor in the show too. Oh, in what? In the in dialogue, they call it a raptor. Bo-Katan calls it a raptor. Oh, okay. I didn't notice that. Um, okay, I have a question for you guys. Why have the Mandalorian shows this planet? tied on when it seems like there's all those vicious creatures there's these raptors that have apparently multiple times come and snatched up uh foundlings or mandalorians and i'm assuming since they never i'm assuming they killed them and then there's like these turtle creatures underneath the water right outside their cave it seems like they could find a better place to have this this hideout well, it's probably not easy to find a place to have a secret hideout. And I, th- I think if you look back at the history of Star Wars, almost everywhere you go, there's going to be some kind of deadly creature around that's going to ruin your day at some point. Uh, but I also think that it's kind of tradition at this point for the Mandalorians to have bad luck finding a place to call their own because every place <laughs> they've been has been destroyed or ambushed. So <laughs> That's true. I just feel like after like one or two of the Mandalorians were snatched by raptors, I'd be like, okay, let's find a different place. But maybe they're like too prideful to do that. Maybe they're they're like we've seen kind of pride with the Mandalorians and like uh, like they're unwilling to like you know they already had their home taken away from them. So like why are they going to leave because of of this creature? They're going to eventually want to take him out. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it's it's similar to like uh, you know other ancient cultures who didn't let you know the land or anything decide where they live. Like they chose a place and that was their home, and they dealt with you know the consequences that were around. My question though is, uh, how exactly are they getting from place to place? Because they obviously don't have any ships of their own that we see. Otherwise, they would probably be using them. They have their jetpacks, but as we see in this episode, it only gets them so far until they run out of fuel. So are they just like taking the bus from planet to planet until they find a place? <laughs> I don't think there's any bus on this planet, this, as far as I can tell. Well, there are trans- is, there are transports from planets to other planets, though, as we've established. Oh yeah. This this is one of those things that made me wonder, like, where are they getting all these people, and how did they get there? And if Bo-Katan's the only one with a ship, like, it, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure maybe there's just some part of the set, or maybe further back into the armorer's cave, there's a ship big enough for them all to get on or something. Um <laughs> But it, it, it definitely strains credulity a little bit. Yes. Okay, so the Mandalorians take off in jetpacks in pursuit of the creature, but apparently they chase them so far that their fuel and their jetpacks run out. Uh, and, of course, Bo-Katan took a different approach and pursues the creature in her ship. And is, uh, Then we cut to the title. The chapter title is revealed. The Foundling. Brian, I always ask you every episode to explain the title. This one, I think, seems a little bit more obvious, but it does seem like there's multiple foundlings, right? Oh, I think I think it it refers to just about everybody on this show, right? Like, Din Djarin was the, the original foundling that the show is following. Uh, Grogu is the foundling that he took in and is trying to uh, coach and train. 
there's the foundling that Ragnar is taken in, uh, hostage. It's the new foundlings uh, at the end of the episode with the new raptor creatures brought into the uh, the Mandalorian fold. And then as well as uh, Grogu, uh, or not Grogu, um, Bo-Katan. Bo-Katan is very much a foundling to this group as well. And I think she's ultimately the one who we who are referencing the hardest because it's her moral quandary or her emotional journey that we're going on over the course of the episode. For sure. Um, okay. So Bo-Katan returns and says that she found the creature's lair. Uh, she's going to set up a hunting party. The nest is in this tall mountain. Uh, but if they use their jetpacks, it would alert the beast and Ragnar would be killed. Uh, they found that has happened in the past where they've like either shot it or made noise like in the person got killed. Uh, so Bo-Katan plans to scale the mountain by hand, which is something she has done before in training. And she mentions a place. And I think you wrote a whole article about this, Brian. Yeah, I did. Um, because that's what I do. So she mentions that she went to the peaks of, uh, Kira Morit, and that was where she trained in climbing and the episode really treats it as a throwaway, but in the old Legends continuity, um, Kiri Morit was a place on Mandalore that was less mountainous peaks and more jungle forest. And it was where Mandalorians, uh, a Mandalorian clan formed there that is very much like this covert where they just took in all the dregs. Um, during the Clone Wars, this clan took in clones trying to desert from the clone army. Um, after the Empire came about, they took in Jedi that were running from the Empire. And so there's a lot of thematic ties to what uh, Kiramoru, Koromoru, um, what this play, uh, yeah, Kiramoru. <laughs> what it was in the old legends to what it is to what it's referencing now and to what the covert is. Um, so that was something that came about first in the um, Republic commando books, which was a tie into that really terrific Republic commando video game. And Karen Travis, the author who, who sort of became the premier Mandalorian author for a while until clone wars sort of broke enough of what she was doing. She sort of rage quit star Wars. Um, and and went off. It was it was actually pretty spectacular if you were around in, in Star Wars watching her have her meltdown over that. Wait, what what happened exactly? Oh, I don't think I've uh, heard the story. The Clone Wars just kept breaking all of the legends material that she had been making in these other books. Right, she really focused in on Mandalorian culture, and in season two, when the Mandalorians started coming to the forefront, and it sort of rewrote everything she'd established about Mandalorian culture, she got very upset about it, and kind of had a meltdown, a very public meltdown about it. Interesting. <laughs> okay, so Bokatan and a small group take off on this hunting mission, leaving Grogu behind. And the armorer is making something for the foundling. And uh, here's something I wanted to bring up for a while. Is it weird that the apparent leader of this group is the armorer? Is she a leader or is she like a holy person? Like is if you had a monastery of Buddhist monks, Buddhist warrior monks, and... 
they didn't necessarily have a leader, but they had the person who's the wisest among among them who kept the stories. Would they be the leader or would they be, you know, the mystic? Okay, I can see that. That's a good argument. Um, so the armorer uses a metaphor to explain the Mandalorian's armor, how it represents the growth of the people inside the armor. Uh, Brian, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. Um, yeah, no, it, it's definitely the armor is supposed to be representative of people. And I think actually what she's talking about is less Grogu and actually referring thematically to Bo-Katan for later in the episode. Um, that, that was my take on it, especially as I watched it a second time, but she was talking to Grogu about what that armor represented for him and how he would grow into it. And I thought it was very telling that she put the sigil of the Mudhorn on it, which is actually funny because when you think back to season one, it was Grogu who defeated the Mudhorn, not, not. Yeah. Dead. Yeah. Um, okay. While the armor forges Grogu experiences this memory, he remembers this moment from order 66, uh, where, Order 66 was called, and he was part of the Jedi Academy in Coruscant. And uh, by the way, I was thinking, we've been seeing a lot of Order 66 in these TV shows lately. It would, I think it would be fun if someone were to create a supercut of like trying to show I, everything in narrative order of everything intercutting ex- between. That exists. People have done a... Um, you know, a four hour cut of Revenge of the Sith cutting in all of this stuff and they keep adding to it, whether it's these shows or the Order 66 scenes in Jedi Fallen Order, the game. Um, so it, it does exist. It's out there. OK, good to know. Uh, we've seen glimpses of this moment before, but we have never seen how it actually plays out. And in this moment, four Jedi are holding the clone troopers back as Grogu glides on his pram. And in the end, they are all killed trying to, quote, get him to Kellerin. And uh, before we dive into that and who Kellerin is, we I wanted to ask you guys, actually, Brad, maybe you have an answer for this one. Should we read anything into the fact that four Jedi Masters are trying to protect this ch- this one child? Is there something special about Grogu, or would they do, would they do that for any Padawan or whatever? I think it's possible, but it does seem like it's more of a thing of just the Jedi trying to protect the younglings because they're not necessarily as ready or able to defend themselves. And so I think they're just trying to... Uh, keep him safe because he's the one who is uh, near them at that point. But but it is, I will say, it is entirely possible that maybe there is something special about him, especially since this is the only other, uh, other than Yoda and Yaddle, the only other uh, you know form of this species that we've seen uh, as a Jedi until now. Is it called the Yoda species still? Is that canon or no? No. Do you know? No. The the closest I've been able to get in any of the licensed work is to refer to them as a, a tridactyl species, tridactyl. but that just refers to how many fingers and toes they have. Brian, any thoughts on this? Like, are we supposed to read into this in any way that like there's something special about Grogu, or is it just like they would do, be doing this for any child? I think they would be doing it for any child. If you remember in Obi Wan Kenobi, this is what they were doing for the group of younglings led by Reva Savander. Yeah. So uh, I, I think this was just, they were trying to do this with younglings with the exception of the ones they're like, we should put these ones in the, the, 
in the Jedi Council chamber, that surely will be safe there. <laughs> okay, so Keller and Beck is here, and we're going to get Grogu to Keller and Beck, and uh, he's taken outside this elevator and escapes with Keller and Beck. Uh, now, if if all of us had written a hundred characters down of who could save Grogu in this one moment, I don't think any of us would have put Keller and Beck. No, I don't. I don't think. I mean, maybe if I were getting to the bottom of the list, going like, "What other Jedi do I know about?" Um, because Keller and Beck, I don't think. I didn't even think he really, was canon. I didn't think he was. I think what they were sort of calling canon adjacent, right? Like the Lego stuff, where it was like, "Here's a character. He could exist in in the canon, but here's the story we came up with for him." But for those who don't know. Keller and Beck came from the Star Wars Jedi Temple Challenge, which was a YouTube show that they produced uh, a couple years ago. That it was, was a send up. It was. It was a send up of the Nickelodeon sort of kids challenge uh, games, uh, game shows like Double Dare or Legends of the Hidden Temple. Yeah. And it was hosted by Ahmed Best who created this character of Keller and Beck who just really wanted to teach younglings. That was his calling was, was the younglings. And uh, so the, the show took place on his ship where he tested various Jedi younglings in their, their skills, but it was actually real kids doing the double dare legends of the hidden temple thing. And it wasn't anything, you know, I was kind of hoping we'd get another season of it because it was just a fun, adorable show. And I think Disney Plus is missing a trick, not putting it on Disney Plus because it's only on YouTube. But yeah, I never I never would have guessed that he would have made the jump to canon, especially not in so dramatic a fashion. <laughs> and we should also mention for those people that don't know, Ahmed Best is probably best known for portraying Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace. And he, uh, he has said that that uh, role has kind of haunted him. Um, so this is kind of a vindication of sorts. Redemption, I guess, is a word uh, in Star is, Wars. No? No, I mean, like, I mean, like, I don't think Jar Jar needed any redeeming, but I do think fans have softened on that character. And there's a lot of regret on the part of of the fandom that did sort of give him the worst time for it, I hope. Yeah. Um, because I think I think people are softening, like they're realizing, like, yeah, I didn't like Jar Jar, but that guy didn't do anything wrong, and we treated him like crap. Um, but I I do think being a character who's so cool, like he's cool in this, right? Like the the determination and anger and look on his face when he's doing all this stuff here is just like he's cool. Yes. Um, we should also mention that in the Star Wars episode two, Attack of the Clones. Ahmed Best played a character named Ahmed Beck, who uh, Best has confirmed in interviews is actually related to this new character. Or not new character, this more recent character. Keller and Beck, yeah. Keller and Beck. Um, and uh, Best is described Beck as a, uh, the first Jedi dedicated to teaching, adding that he had been inspired by Kenobi and Yoda's nurturing kind of mentorship and uh here's something interesting and i think uh brian you might have even written about this but uh keller and beck on the tv show uh, on the uh, youtube show 
he had a lightsaber that was made of pieces that actually were uh, created from Savi's workshop in Galaxy's Edge, which is something I think all three of us have partaken in that experience at this point. Yes. Brian, you've done it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I've done yeah, it. Yeah. Um, that was a really tremendous experience. But yes, um, I want to say it's the Peace and Defender set that you can actually assemble um, Keller and Beck's lightsaber from. And uh, I did. I wrote a whole article about his saber because on the show, it's a purple blade. Yeah. And he wielded green and blue here. And I, I sort of had to write up some ideas about why he didn't have the purple blade. So why do you think he doesn't have the purple blade? Mace Windu stole it. Well, I think there's two. There's <laughs> <laughs> there's there's the in-universe answer and the behind-the-scenes answer. The in-universe answer is there's a lot of you know there's a lot of shit going on in Order sixty six, and he may well have lost his saber and picked up new ones. And in fact, there is a shot when I was rewatching it where he does pick up the saber of the Jedi that died in the elevator with Grogu. But it's um, blue. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely not his saber. So he's already working with sabers that aren't his own. I think the behind the scenes is probably they wanted to preserve the specialness of that purple saber on screen for Mace Windu. Yeah, especially because I think Samuel Jackson, when they, that happened, specifically said he wanted to be the only person to have a purple lightsaber in the Star Wars universe. Has it really not been another purple lightsaber, even in like the animated stuff? Um, not on screen. Um, there have been some Jedi in the High Republic that have wielded purple uh, lightsabers, but that's literally ancient history. Um, no one on screen, uh, to my recollection, has wielded a purple lightsaber. There have been yellow, um, and Ray is not the only one who has yellow. Yeah. Um, that was that was with the the Jedi Temple Guard, but yeah, everyone else has had a shade of blue, red, or green. Okay, using his saber and the, the blue saber from that fallen Jedi, uh, Beck. Oh, I should actually ask you: Do we know any of these fallen Jedi that got killed? The four that were there. Um, I didn't. I wasn't able to to find any of their their history or names or anything. I think one of them yeah. was Glup Shido. <laughs> Possible, possible. <laughs> um, okay, so anyway, he deflects the blaster shots from the oncoming clone troopers and makes quick work of them before jumping onto a speeder with Grogu. And we should also mention that um, that uh, tomorrow Morrison's uh, is credited as the clone troopers here, so you hear his voice. Uh, what what did you guys think of the chase sequence through Coruscant on the speeder? I thought it was really cool to revisit Monument Plaza so quickly, uh, even though it's at a point, you know, 20 years in the past, 30 years in the past. Why do you think they use they use the same location? Is it just easier because it's built out? It's, in- it's a production budget thing, right? Like, like it's the same reason um, on Clone Wars where, you, where you'll talk to the production team, right? And they'll say like, we've only got enough money for like one big new environment a season or something, but then, or we can only rig X amount of aliens this season, but then next season they still have all those assets and they can repurpose them or whatever. And so you noticed that's part of how clone wars and bad batch got better. Every season is because they were able to just add to the assets they have because they were able to build that stuff. And I think monument Plaza is one of those things that the last episode spent all the money to develop it and make it look rad and, and get it into the, to the, the volume. And so why not create a, um, 
another moment here with something that they already had access to. It, it just, it, it's a, it's a cost saver. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. So Keller and Beck makes this rough landing to quote, a uh, quote unquote, meet up with some friends and his friends seem to be some guards from Naboo, five Royal uh, Naboo guards. Uh, this is another thing that Brian wrote up for the site. Did Padme, uh, did Padme save Grogu? I don't think so. I think Padme, if you watch Revenge of the Sith and remember, she's literally watching the Jedi Temple burn from her apartment with no answers, waiting for Anakin to come back and give her those answers. This seems very much like uh, Keller and Beck reached out to someone else to ask for help and ask for a way out. And what other character of major standing on could be on Coruscant at this time would have access to uh, guards from Naboo and uh, a ship. And that would be representative Binks. I really think that that <laughs> part of the reason I, I it's, it's funny, but like, I, I, I honestly can't come up with another answer of who it could possibly be because we see it, it very clearly not seem to be Padme from a revenge of the Sith and Jar Jar is the only person who's unaccounted for and of a status of position enough to be able to do that for him. So Jar Jar Binks is the unsung hero of the Jedi purge. Apparently he saved Grogu. Yeah. Uh, I can hear Brad rolling his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Beck informs him that no, there are no others. Actually, I should ask you this, Brian. Do you think Beck? No, no, it, it couldn't be uh, called a carry Beck because it predates carry Beck, right? Um, yeah, it was a name. It was it was a name that they had come. It was like a George Lucas name when he's like, "Who are you going to be?" And he's like, "I don't know." And George Lucas is like, "Ahmed Beck," because it yeah. kind of sounds like Ahmed Best. And Kellerin Beck was the name they came up with for the the show based on that. And we should say Beck is B-E-Q or something. It's, yeah. it's spelled weird. Uh, so he informs them that there are no others. Does he mean that there's no other Jedi escaped from Order 66 Assault in the Temple? Or does he mean there's no others with him? Were they the, expecting the, others? The impression I got, and and you two correct me if if I'm reading this wrong, is that he was trying to meet a group of Jedi in that elevator and they were going to make their escape. And he'd arranged for the travel arrangements for them to, to, to get away. And at the end of the day, all like when he opens the elevator and looks down shocked, all he sees is Grogu, his dead friend and his lightsaber. He picks up the lightsaber and just keeps going because if he stays to dally for more, he's going to die. So my guess is he was expecting to get that whole group out. Yeah. But Order 66 was much more horrific than even they would have realized. I think you're right. Yeah. So a uh, gunship filled with clone troopers lands on uh, and the new Boo Guards give Beck and Grogu their ship. Um, and uh, the Silver Starship takes off. It's but an again, H-type Nubian yacht. Sounds, sounds fancy. Uh, oh, it is. It's the same kind of ship Padme and Anakin took to Tatooine and Attack of the Clones. Yeah. Uh, it might so even it, be the same one. Oh, it might be. Uh, and it, it takes off and it's being uh, pursued by a couple ships. Are these V-Wings? Um, these are the these are the sort of TIE fighter precursors that were used by the Republic at the end of the Clone Wars. You see them in Revenge of the Sith a bunch. 
Okay, so Kellerin jumps to light speed. And with that, we are out of the flashback, and I am there being like, no, come on, that's it? We're now we got to go back to the, the monster thing that I don't care about? Uh, <laughs> Brad, what are your thoughts on this flashback as a whole? Uh, I mean, I, li- I liked it. It's uh, it's a nice, you know, gap to fill in. Um, I, I it, it shows that, uh, I think we talked about this when we saw first saw a glimpse of this uh, a while back that, we wondered if it was uh, Anakin Skywalker who was behind the door because, you know, it seemed like it was a lightsaber that was cutting through the door, but apparently not uh, a little, a little disappointed there. Uh, but otherwise I think, I wonder if this is the first of several flashbacks we'll get and that they'll keep continuing uh, this flashback story as Grogu continues to experience new things as he's, you know, doing his Mandalorian training. Yes. Um, okay. So the armor gifts Grogu with the small rondelle of uh beskar steel that uh has a mud horn symbol in it and uh he'll grow into it eventually as part of his armor and uh we saw that she like inlaid a bunch of like circuitry into the rondo i didn't i didn't imagine that the mandalorian armor had like technological stuff underneath it but i Um, guess it makes sense we've seen that before in the first episode when she was creating the rangefinder for ragnar she was doing some of the circuitry in that. Um, And in the canon and even the legends, you know, like the reason those Mandalorians wear those helmets is because there is an impressive amount of technology in there to help them do their warrior business. Yeah. Uh, So now we are back to the rescue mission with Bo-Katan. It's funny. Whenever I type Bo-Katan into my phone, it changes it to no Karen. (laughs) <laughs> and uh i'm too lazy that to change be, it so i'm happy with that as a slogan no karen yeah so every time i'm reading it i have to in my mind translate no karen into Bo-Katan. uh anyways uh leading the war party to <laughs> the peak where they uh they bake camp and eat uh rations for dinner and uh uh Bo learns that the way mandalorians in the covert eat is they find a private place to remove their helmet seems very impractical and i i think uh ryan scott on the site wrote an article titled the more the mandalorian explains that its helmet role the more questions we have uh <laughs> guys how does um i don't think we've ever asked this question on the, on the podcast like do mandalorians have sex with like do they procreate like, do they take the helmet off if they're, like, intimate? I mean, <laughs> that stands to reason that maybe they do, or maybe there are different... Maybe we'll learn other rules about, like... It, it would it would surprise me, right, if we got to a point on the show where they're, like, Grogu and Din can no longer show each other their face. I wonder if they've both taken the creed and they're part of this same clan that maybe there's some exception carved out for them, right? It, the same sort of a carve out that you might find for two, you know, lovers procreating, but there's probably also a reason that almost no one except for the children of the watch do this helmet thing. It's because it probably gets really obnoxious during these times. Peter, I'm sure you've, uh, if this isn't already done, but now you've just unlocked a whole sect of erotic fan fiction of Mandalorians having sex with their helmets on. 
Oh no! Is that a thing? Are you joking? I don't. Or? I don't know. Like I. I mean, I imagine because of the internet, I'm sure it has to be out there somewhere. But yeah, I'm, now now it's just Mandalorian sex where naked bodies and helmets on. Are they allowed to remove their armor? Do they just need to have their helmet on? It doesn't say anything about the armor, just the helmet. Yeah. This okay. is the way. <laughs> may, may, maybe by season four we'll learn more about this. Okay. Uh, the, the next morning, uh, Bo leads the team up the rock face with the gra- with grappling cables and such. And it uh, seems like it would have been so much easier to do this all without the heavy armor and the jetpacks, especially Paz Vizsla, who has that huge, like, repeating blaster. But whatever. Um, so they make it to the top. And there's a, uh, it's a huge nest, and you can see, like, you can even see a Mandalorian helmet from a previous feeding in, like, the twine there. And Vizsla is too emotionally involved and starts yelling for his, his son's name, which wakes up the babies in the nest. There's three baby raptor creatures here. And uh, the adult raptor co- returns to the nest and Paz covers himself with some brush, which somehow... Uh, somehow hides (laughs) how is that possible brian how does the the, Um, the brush conceal his blue armor maybe the visual acuity of this is based on movement and since he's not moving i don't know i that's not the thing that broke my head about this scene oh you're talking about the okay so the mother raptor regurgitates ragnar after having him in his mouth for a whole day Two days and a night. Oh, because two days. He, well, he got he got abducted the day before, spent all day, all night, and then all this day in the in in the gullet of this creature. And he co- he gets coughed up and just goes, I'm still alive, help me, please. Why we we saw when Bo Katan chased the, the raptor back to the nest that like the raptor got to the nest, so why didn't he why didn't she just regurgitate the the sun at yeah. that point? Because he wasn't done stewing. I guess the digestive system of this animal is very slow. And uh, if they were to have cut it open, they would have found that little Kintner boy, too. <laughs> uh, Brad, any any thoughts on this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a bit weird, but but maybe it was the kind of thing, too, where the mama was holding on to it like for, for a meal later. And then when maybe you heard them coming up and was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to hide this and then come back later. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, Paz jets into the air and the Raptor grabs not only him, but his son and Paz fires a flamethrower at the Raptor from his mouth. And Bo-Katan tries to save the boy, from the creature's grip while the other Mandalorians are on jetpacks are there to distract. And, uh, I don't know. I felt like this whole sequence is kind of like an underwhelming action sequence with Paz Vizsla escaping and Mando knocking the boy from the Raptor's grip and catching him in midair. And then the Raptor falls into the water and it's eaten by a dinosaur. The dinosaur turtle is back or another dinosaur turtle is back in uh what did you guys think uh, brad what did you think of this whole action sequence it was it was enjoyable to an extent but there was a part of it that felt a little clumsy because at times it was difficult to really get a grasp on like what certain mandalorians were doing like how their shooting of their grapples was like affecting the um the raptor and and whatnot and i felt like there's there could have been a better way to really show 
how this confrontation was was unfolding and what they were trying to do. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it wasn't you know I I kind of like the the there's always a bigger fish you know kind of approach of having the the raptor get eaten by the dinosaur turtle and whatnot. So it was good, but not great. Could have been better. Yeah. Uh, the father and son are reunited and they return to the covert victorious. Bo-Katan is honored for the rescue and the armor replaces her lost shoulder armor with a signet uh, featuring the mythosaur and Bo-Katan confides with the ar- in the armor. Finally, she, she tells someone that she has seen the mythosaur and the armor is like, yeah, sure you did. We, we, we see many things. <laughs> what, what are you guys thoughts on this? Like uh, even though she insists that she, she actually saw the mythosaur and it wasn't a vision. Uh, do you think the armor believes her at all? I think that the armor kind of came around when she was insisting, which is why the last line of the episode is this is the way. Um, but I feel like I, the thing that was most interesting about it for me was that I felt like I'm really torn about what Bo is doing here. Is she testing the story out to see if people will believe it? Is she unsure of it because she doesn't believe it herself? There's, I think that that tension inside of Bo is, is really the most interesting emotional story going on with the Mandalorian stuff uh, side of the story right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and also they have brought three Raptor babies back to the covert who, which um, I guess let's jump in uh, before we jump into speculation. Uh, let's take a few. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay. Let's jump into speculation. What are the Mandalorians going to do with the baby Raptors? Brad, tell me. Uh, I'm pretty sure that they are going to train them and teach them to talk and give them armor and make them foundlings. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, do you have any better answer? <laughs> no, I think we're they're going to be like, we saw a hint of what this was in Book of Boba Fett, right? Like they've got mounts now. They're going to have those creatures and they're going to tame this planet. Oh, so you think Mandalorian are going to be like riding these baby raptors oh, and yeah. stuff? Yeah. Which is, again, sort of another um, sort of nod to the holiday special. Oh, for sure. Uh, where is Keller and Beck going to take Grogu? Oh, somewhere fabulous, I hope. I would take a whole spinoff show of them doing the lone wolf and cub thing. <laughs> like, like too seriously, me, I, though. Be too say me. No, because a Jedi on the run during the Empire is way different than Din Djarin. But it's not much. And a bounty hunter. But it's not much different than Obi Wan trying to save Princess Leia. Mm. There's a lot. There's there's different baggage there, though. <laughs> I mean, thematically and char- characteristically, yes, that's true. But yeah. like, I'm not sure how many stories we need of a Jedi trying to protect, uh, you know, a young character. <laughs> But the Padawan is in danger, too, for the fact of their being a Jedi as well. I don't know. I just this is like, I think, my favorite untapped area. So I just want more stories like that. And and Ahmed Best just really sold this in such a short amount of time. I just want more of him. I mean, I like him, too. I'm wondering how much we're going to see more of Grogu's backstory, like how he got to that. I mean, obviously, in season one, we learned how he got. Actually, I'm, th- I'm thinking about Din now. I'm mixing things up. Like, how much more of this backstory do you think we're going to see from him getting from where we see him with Color and Beck to him 
uh, being the bounty in season one episode or chapter one of the Mandalorian doesn't really matter at this point. Like, I feel like the only thing I really needed to know is how he got saved from Order 66. I am still really curious about how he gets on the radar of the Advanced Science Division. I'm really curious about how he ends up in the hands of the Nikto traitors or pirates. I'm really curious to see how he stays safe with Keller and Beck dead or however, you know, maybe Keller and Beck is still out there. Who knows? But what that what that emotional I think that would be a really emotional scene for us to see is whatever Keller and Beck's sacrifice is for Grogu on the next step of his journey. I think with this Mandalorian group, they, they're definitely expanding uh, this group a little, especially with uh, adding Ragnar to the group. And now you have a father-son relationship. Uh, Brian, or actually either of you, what, what, do you, what role do you think Ragnar is going to play in the series? Or do you think he's just going to be a background character from here on out? I, I don't necessarily see him playing a bigger part than Paz Vizsla has. Uh, I guess like one of the maybe. big questions I have, what were you going to say? Uh, maybe they train together. Maybe they do more of that karate kid style, you know, training against each other. Um, but it, it, that would be the extent of it that I would imagine. Um, how will the covert change Bo-Katan? I feel like we already feel that she's kind of being accepted into this group. Maybe she's seeing like, Oh, maybe this is where I'm meant to be. Um, any theories on where this is going to go? I, I mean, I eventually see that her and the armor are going to butt heads, right? Only because they're trying to kiss <laughs> while they're trying to have sex with their armor on. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Brad, any thoughts on Bo-Katan's future? as part of this group. No, I think she's biding her time and still figuring things out. And, you know, I, I think that I, I, and I assume, you know, this is heading to a point where like these, these two different sides of Mandalorian culture come together. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll eventually see her leading all of them. Uh, but it's a matter of how she gets there and, you know, what steps that need to be taken to, to get there as well. See, that's all the questions I wrote down for the speculation after this episode, because I feel like this episode doesn't point us in many directions of where this show's going. So I'll leave the floor open to you guys. Like, what do you, what do you guys think? What now? What's the next episode? Where are we I headed? The la- I think the last episode actually is the bigger clue for that, right? You've got this group of Mandalorians who are regrowing their strength and you have some unseen force of the empire willing to, try to eliminate them again, which is what we saw with Bo-Katan's castle. And I think the last episode really showed us that Moff Gideon was pulling some of those strings, but I think that Thrawn might be pulling some of his strings. So I think the next episode or the next few episodes are going to lead us down that trail to actually reintroduce Gideon and possibly show us that shadow of Thrawn. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's where we, we likely need to be headed. I, I do wonder how soon we'll we'll get back to it or what happens next because there's, there was no real 
indication here as to like you know uh, a next step or teasing you know what's what's to come but the yeah the the moff gideon uh sort of cliffhanger of it all and the stuff with dr pershing and Elia kane is was a pretty integral thing for us to focus on so i feel like we have to get some kind of uh development there and the mandalorian has been pretty quick about uh churning out stories that we thought would take longer to to deal with so i don't i do wonder if maybe that's where we'll head back to after this you think we're actually going to pay off the mythosaur this season? I think we kind of have to. I think that's why the opening scene is a metaphor for that, right? The opening scene is a metaphor for the the creature coming up out of the water. I think the the last scene is going to be that too. Okay, that brings us to the end of this episode. Did, do either of you have anything else to add before we go? I'm just really grateful that Jar Jar Binks is finally getting his due. Not just the actor playing him, but clearly Jar Jar Binks had a hand in saving Grogu. And this pleases me greatly. I hope you get to interview Dave Filoni and ask him that ridiculous question. And waste waste his time with that. uh... I wouldn't ask him about something that is potentially in the future because I know he's just going to give me a roundabout answer. I've talked to him enough to know that he's going to say something like, eh, you know, always in motion is the future, uh, which is a waste of a question, but I, it's, it's, it's a solid theory and I don't know how you could come up with anything else. If you were going to spend your time asking Dave Flynn about anything, it would have to be the Mandalorian sex thing. For that sure. would probably yield a much better answer. Yeah. I really wonder what Dave Floney would answer. You know, we got to, you can actually like go to chat GPT and like be like, answer this question in the voice of Steve Jobs. I wonder if they could answer my question in the voice of Dave Floney. And would that, that give you an answer that is wearing a hat? Probably. Okay. So you can find <laughs> more of all the, the, the the articles we mentioned on today's podcast on slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. My dogs are barking because there's someone at the door. Please send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, speculation to Peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>